In our consideration of the question, what do we know about limitations imposed upon the exercise of God's loving kindness and mercy from the Bible, we were considering several things that were not impossible limitations to God's loving mercy and kindness. Certainly all of man's sin should be a limitation on God's mercy and kindness. But because of the overflowing disposition of love that the Scripture reveals that the Godhead possesses, man has been the subject of abounding mercies and kindnesses. We saw that God was in no sense arbitrary in selecting one above the other as the objects of his mercy and kindness, and therefore that this cannot be called a barrier to the exercise of mercy. We saw that the absence of personal merit was not a barrier. Then none would be saved because all have great and impossible deficiencies in their conduct. We saw also that no one is seeking after God, and yet that this is not an impossible barrier. But we go on positively in the second place to say that God is utterly unable to pour forth his loving kindness and mercy in free pardon of sin unless he can do so consistently with his righteousness, which is also a manifestation of the loving and purposeful love of God. We say that God is righteous because he is disposed by his perfect benevolence or love to treat every individual in a way that is right and proper. Or we may say that God is righteous because he discharges every moral obligation to his creatures. He cannot exercise his mercy in any way that will jeopardize the welfare of the least of his creatures. In this connection, we are then prepared to make a number of remarks. First, that man, by virtue of his endowments, is under moral law or moral government, as distinguished from physical law or the law of cause and effect. The former realm is characterized by voluntary action, which may or may not take place. The realm of physical law involves no uncertainty, provide an adequate cause, and the effect always follows. The realm of moral law involves motives to action, which provide reward for obedience and punishment or unhappiness for disobedience. Let us remember that the great loving God imposes no restrictions upon our happiness, but all his measures and requirements are for our own good and happiness as well as his own. It is most important that we do not confuse these two realms of God's moral government. The first realm, the physical realm, or the law of cause and effect, of course, embrace the great heavenly bodies as they swing through their great and profound maneuvers in space. God provides an adequate cause, and the result follows, which man calculates and observes. But in the realm of man's will and man's personality, all is different because God has endowed man with his moral image, which involves the quality of free will. 
Man cannot be predicated as to what he will do, because this must be and is his own voluntary decision. So it's important to see that although in the physical realm or the law of cause and effect, God doesn't have very much difficulty controlling things, it appears. God merely speaks, as we recorded in the first chapter of Genesis, and the marvels of his creation sprang forth. But when it comes to the consideration and management of his moral creatures, man, God is tested to the very ultimate in his endeavor to control them, because man is not a mere machine, but a living personality endowed with the quality of free will and voluntary choice. This leads us to say, secondly, that the basic purpose of punishment is to prevent disobedience and not primarily to reform the offender, although under some circumstances it also does tend to reform the offender. Punishment is a public declaration of the fact that disobedience and rebellion against God will not be tolerated, and thus becomes a barrier to all who are considering the ways of lawlessness and uncompliance. Let us remember that the plan of God to regulate his moral creatures is a most loving plan, that God in his great heart of love does not impose anything upon man that would be disagreeable to his welfare. And this makes man profoundly guilty in refusing to be guided by his loving creator. So the basic purpose of punishment is to prevent disobedience and thus to contribute to man's happiness. We may say in the third place that if this be so, Every time pardon is exercised, justice is necessarily weakened. Every pardoned criminal who goes forth to proclaim to the world that his crime has been pardoned also proclaims that crime can be indulged in when, without suffering the penalty. This possibility of escape lets down the barriers to others who are thereby weakened in their moral stand. We may remark, fourthly, that it is impossible in human governments to exercise both justice and mercy at the same time. Diligent rulers seek to balance out these antagonistic operations. If they are too lenient one day at the expense of justice, they seek to be more rigorous the following day at the expense of mercy. It is thus impossible in the realm of human government to exercise both justice and mercy at the same time. In the fifth place we say that the impoverishedness of human government is aptly illustrated in the biblical account of Darius, who was king of the Medes and the Persians, this great empire that we read about primarily in the book of Daniel. And thus Daniel had to be thrown into the den of lions because there was found no substitutionary measure to uphold the public welfare if the king were to make an exception in Daniel's case in pardoning his iniquity. Let us consider this interesting story for a few moments. In the fifth chapter of Daniel, the last verse, 
We read that in Darius, the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. It pleased Darius, in the sixth chapter we read, to set over the kingdom a hundred and twenty princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first. So here's the structure. Here's this great and uh, authoritative king, having chosen three presidents, and 120 uh, under them. And we read that Daniel was the first or the prominent president under the king. Of course, this displeased his competitors, who were of a different heart completely than his, and they sought to find some reason to dispose of him. And it's wonderful to read that they said that they couldn't find any occasion against him except they would find it concerning his relation to God. Is that not a wonderful account from the enemies of God of the fervency and faithfulness of the Christian testimony or the godly testimony of Daniel? And so they found the king at a weak moment and proposed to him that he make a law that no one was to ask anything of anyone for 30 days except of the king. This kind of flattered him, no doubt, and so he signed this apparently without remembering Daniel's character for the moment. Could be that Daniel was momentarily away when this was brought to pass. But dear old Daniel, when this was signed and sealed and published as a law throughout the kingdom was not to be hindered in his prayer life to his God. And so we read in the 10th verse that when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his gods as he did before time. So Daniel didn't become timid, but pressed right on in his fervent Christian testimony. Of course, the enemies of Daniel were there to hear this prayer by great purpose. And so they brought this to the attention of the king, and it appears that this was a great agony to the king's heart immediately. Because we read in verse 14, And then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And with great difficulty we notice this laborious process. For we read, And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. And he found no measure in his governmental expediency as to how Daniel could be delivered and at the same time the law upheld. You see his problem. With all his heart he wanted to extend mercy. This may have been in some extent selfish because of Daniel's efficiency, but be that as it may, the fact remains that he set his heart to deliver Daniel, and he was in authority in his kingdom, and yet he found no process of government by which he might extend mercy and at the same time be just in the upholding of his law. Obviously enough, if he had extended pardon to Daniel, then the rigorousness of the authority of the law would have been dispensed with in his kingdom, and endless chaos and rebellion would have set in. So in due time, the great punishment had to be extracted, and Daniel was cast into this den of waiting hungry lions. And as he came down, he noted a tremendous blessing of God, no doubt, in his soul. 
And as he came to the bottom of this pit, something happened to these lions. They were marvelously compelled to leave him alone. And can't you see Daniel's faith transcending all the weaknesses of any human manifestation and climbing up to a great pinnacle of exercise and joy? And so Daniel was preserved, according to the account, through the night in this den of lions. But the king was in great misery through the night, took off his fancy robes, refused all forms of uh, indulgence that he was so accustomed to. But in the morning he came hastily to this den of lions and with a great lamentable voice cried out, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually, again a testimony, able to deliver thee from the lions. And then Daniel said unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me. Also before thee, O king, I have done no hurt. So here we have this wonderful account brought in to teach us something about the difficulties of moral government. We shall give future consideration as to similar problems that exist in God's great moral government in the extension of his mercy. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank thee for this victory of faith that we have read about. How we thank thee for this illustration that sets forth thy problems in the forgiveness of sin. And now we thank thee that the gospel invites all sinners to repent of sin. Come to thee, Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world by faith. Obtain forgiveness and restoration. May many do so in Jesus' name. Amen.